Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. No great discovery was ever made without a bold guess, is a quote from Sir Isaac Newton. The English physicist and mathematician, the culminating figure of the scientific revolution of the 17th century. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest, an Englishman, who, like Sir Isaac Newton, hails from Lincolnshire and went on to have a profound career, working with and advising leaders across industries, driven by curiosity and the courage to face uncertainty. Our guest today is John Lydon, former managing partner. Australia and New Zealand of McKinsey and Company. During his tenure, the regional practice grew threefold to over 450 consultants, as well as founding McKinsey Implementation globally. Today, John is a senior partner at the firm, as well as chairman of Generation Australia, co-chair of the Australian Climate Leaders Coalition, and a member of the University of Technology Sydney's Vice-Chancellor's Advisory Board. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners and followers from all over the world, please don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And for our listeners in Switzerland, South Africa and the United Kingdom, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, we are treated to some fascinating stories from John's distinguished career, starting from the quiet and peaceful backdrop of Lincolnshire to traversing the world, which has ultimately seen him lead McKinsey and Company's practice in the region, advising clients on decisions that impact communities, and the greater society. Following his term as managing partner, John took a sabbatical to truly explore how business can create more value for all stakeholders and society. Today, he shares with us his key learnings and reveals how true commitment to ESG, social impact, and purpose can positively influence not only a business's bottom line, but also the future of the world and generations to come. So sit back and enjoy. Forward with courage and curiosity. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. John, what was it like growing up in Lincolnshire? Lincolnshire, UK. Potato country, farming country. Beautiful, actually. At the time, I probably didn't think it was beautiful. I thought it was rather quiet and uh, peaceful. It's a small town, South Lincolnshire, near Stamford. 
uh, which was a bus ride away. Peterborough was the big city. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, they'd go there to watch football and things like that, go shopping Christmas Eve. But other than that, didn't have a whole lot to do with it. And uh, it was it was a great idyllic kind of childhood with all the usual knocks and bumps and scratches and things like that. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a nice place to be. What did mum and dad do? So mum was a hairdresser and my dad, he was in the potato business, which is not unusual for that uh, part of the world. Yeah. Uh, where he ended up was uh, running the like, dispatch for the lorries of this small potato merchant company. So right. dispatching off lorries to farms to pick up potatoes and managing that whole process. But you had, unfortunately, some challenges early life. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd say at the time it was tragic. My, my dad, my father, Michael, uh, he died of an unusual cancer when I was 13, which you know, it was it's a gut punch, right? It's horrible uh, at the time. And, you know, we'd grown up, never had like huge amount of money or anything, but it was a lot of love. And so you suddenly your life changes, right? And when I look back on that now, while it's still something horrible that should wish never would have happened to me or my younger sister. Yeah. Actually, you know, you get things out of it, right? You learn, you you pick yourself up and you you move on. So some of the more formative things have come from that as well. What, not becoming... A local grocer? Ah, the the local grocer. That was an aspiration, wasn't it? (laughs) Your research is good, Greg. Um, And I still might. But uh, yeah, so look, the place where I grew up, there was no real exposure to business, right, beyond the job that my dad uh, did. And then my granddad had been a foundry, worked in a foundry uh, manager for an engineering company long before that. But there was not a lot of exposure to business. I so didn't no really family know members what it was. running businesses, their uncles and aunties, or anything like that. Not, no, not really, not really. I think I had to. Um, they, they'd work, they'd have jobs, but they weren't, and it wasn't really business. The job was something they did. I didn't even think what that was. Okay. Um, now, the best job in town was probably the bank manager. There were oh, yeah. even in this little village, there were like four bank branches. I bet there's not now, uh, but. And that was great, but they they were a bit too smart. I was never going to be bank manager. You had to be really clever to be the bank manager. But the local supermarket manager, that was kind of cool, right? That was a good job, really essential service, part of the community. That was the sort of thing I said, one day, maybe one day, that's what I can do. Yeah, but you had a bit of a track record, didn't you, being fairly entrepreneurial during your days at university? Uh, well, I think it was after, yeah, after my dad had sadly died, right? My mum carried on hairdressing, but it wasn't like we had a, a whole lot of money. Yeah, so right. I, I had to start working, um, including in the supermarket. That's probably where I got a bit of that ambition from at 14 or, or whatever I was. And in the UK at that time, you would, I don't know, earn two quid an hour, something like that, uh, which was fine, right? Uh, better than nothing. But I thought, I wonder what I can do gets more. And there were some things at the time. I, I sort of saw what they bought and sold stuff for. So part of that was just buying and selling some things myself, like oranges at Christmas on a market and the hairdressing salon where my mum was, selling soft drinks and things in the summer. So that sort of gave me a bit of a bug. And at the time, computer games like Sinclair, Spectrum and Commodore computers oh, and things. 64. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, yeah. They were all the... They were all the rage. And Space Invaders floating around then? That sort of thing, exactly. And, and of course, what happened was you'd buy your game on a cassette tape and because like kids are kids, they wouldn't all pay like all this money for games. They'd copy them on blank tapes. So blank tapes at the time, they were like 60 or 90 minutes, which was a bit of a waste if you only needed them for a short 
two, three minute computer game. So I found this way to get cassette tapes made that were only five minutes long, just enough space for a computer game. You could put on both sides without spending loads of time rewinding it. So it was it was a killer app at the time for dodgy kids who pirated computer games. Not that I'd ever condone it being used for that. It's for sport, you know, to record short speeches at parties. Of course. And, and I could just get these things made and they were so cheap. And the expensive part was the case. And I thought, well, I'm going to sell these by mail order. Why would anyone need a case anyway? And it's just bulky because I got rid of them. So it was really super cheap to get these made. And yet they were more convenient than the ones you'd buy in the newsagents or the record store that were 60 and 90 minutes long. So you could kind of charge the same price for it. And that was an amazing business. So I loved that and started to see that rather than earn two quid an hour in the shops or the pubs, which I still carried on you know, doing because I had to, that being an entrepreneur was a kind of cool. Was en- I got some energy from it. It was a good thing to do. And it was actually helping people, right? It was fulfilling a need that wasn't met. And that was at school. I did actually get to university. That was quite a surprise to a lot of people, I think. Interesting meeting, wasn't it, to, uh, to get the green light to go into that university? Well, I'd gone in full credit to my school that, you know, I went down for an interview. This wasn't Oxford or Cambridge anything. It was a place about 30 miles outside London at Egham, Royal Holloway and Bedford, which I think is a decent university now. At the time, it really, you know, was, uh, was not that uh, uh Went down and had some interviews, and it was the first time I'd ever had to wear a suit. I wasn't going to go in my school uniform because I didn't think that was kind of cool, and they probably wouldn't let me in the bar after the interviews either at the uni. I had to find out what these university bars were like they would have been talking about. So I borrowed a uh, a jacket from my stepfather, uh, Ron, and my mum. Well, he, they weren't married then, but she was in a relationship uh, a few years after my dad had died. So I'm, I'm wearing Ron's jacket, a little bit too big for me, and I get down, go on the train, have the interview, and it's actually fascinating. You know what? This was the eye-opening moment. Actually, not just going to university, but having those interviews, being asked these questions, really thinking in a different way, and seeing other people who did that all the time. And at one stage, I had to go and get a pen. So I, I went to get a pen out of my pocket to write down the name of this book the professor had recommended. And uh, I came out with a piece of billiard chalk because this was the jacket that my Ron, yeah, my mother's partner, wore to play snooker in. So anyway, so I bring up this chalk. Oh, I stuffed it now. And uh, the guy started smiling and said, do you want to tell me about that? So I told him the whole story and what had happened in my life story. And you know what? I got in, right? I ended up getting an unconditional offer to to go there. I didn't even have to get like, well, the equivalent of an ATAR. I just got straight in. And I loved that time at university. It was a real gift, meeting some amazing people from different walks of life that hadn't all come from, you know, potato farming villages in South Lincolnshire. What did you read? Uh, Modern history, economics, economic history, and politics. So it was what I think here you'd call an arts degree that Mm -hmm. uh, in in the UK, that was what people did, right? (laughs) And I think at the time, when I realized you had to choose a course as well as choose a university, my criteria were things like, what's the minimum amount of lecture hours per week? So I could do part-time jobs and be entrepreneurial to just get the money to pay for it all. And then I think there was another dimension probably of my two-by-two matrix, which was male-female ratio. And and this one was pretty good on that as a single guy, you know, going off to uni as well. It was important. So it fulfilled both of those. But you know what? Taught me how to think taught me how to be curious, to solve problems in different ways, to read, 
to ask good questions and to consider arguments from different dimensions. That's what I really learned. And did you still continue in your business life? Yeah, we did a few things there. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was good though. You suddenly had a market going from a local village to now, I don't know, three, 4,000 students who all needed things like uh, TVs and you know video players and, uh, and all of that. So you're the man who could get everything, I right? could get everything. There was, <laughs> I think when people started calling me like Arthur Daly, that, that's, that's right. what I thought. Maybe I've taken this a bit too far. Right? Maybe I've just taken this a bit too far. But uh, from that, still did some part-time work, had an interesting job at one stage, being a bookmaker's clerk, doing the numbers behind uh, the the screen, as it were, before that was all computerized. That was a brilliant, fast-moving thing. And yep. between all that, I still had time to learn and make some wonderful friendships and start to see the world, right? That was the time I would have first gone overseas or uh, just met people from very different backgrounds. What were you inclined? Did you figure out, are you, are you creative? You're mathematically very sharp. What were you learning about yourself? You know, you don't think about it, do you? You no. don't think about learning about yourself. I think that I liked people and I liked being with people and learning from and with people. That was probably the biggest thing. And that also always have a go at something because what's the worst thing that can happen? Right? And that probably came from my father passing away as well. It's like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, I'm not going to die, right? Or nothing can actually be as bad as having my father die. So it doesn't matter if I'm going to look idiot or come last or get dropped from the team or whatever it is, I'm going to have a go. And just do it now. Don't hang about and wait because you never know how long you got, right? So that's a big motivation to fast track? Yeah, I think I did. I, and I still, I catch myself doing this and I've tried to learn not to, which is, you know, I do kind of rush and get things done quickly. It's not always the best way, but at the time when I'm faced with these unlimited opportunities, suddenly I wanted to do everything and do it quickly. You finished university. What options did you have and why did you make your choice? So I applied for some graduate jobs. The one that I chose was Citibank in the UK. I think uh, it wasn't a you know, high-end banking, corporate finance part of Citibank that hired So you're not me. going in as a trader after all that? Well, they tried to get me as a trader, but um, it was the operations part of Citibank uh, which actually to me made a lot of sense, which was working with people and it was making things work and making things better. How can we improve and delivering useful things? And yeah, we did the graduate trading program and part of that was bond trading and foreign exchange, exchange trading. And funnily enough, this was exactly like the bookmaking stuff that I'd done. Right? And I know you'll have a lot well, of- And you are running your own book too. You, you'll have a lot of bankers that are saying, no, it's nothing like that. It's not gambling. But I, my skills were quite suited to that. But at the end of the day, that's not what I wanted to do, right? It's a great job and I have full respect for people who did it. But I wanted to stay in operations. I wanted to work with people and make things better. When did you see the, uh, the classic consultant come? What were your feelings and thoughts about those consultants turning up? We did use a few consultants, not that many, but we used them sometimes. So I had ended up, I think, after, you know, you start to get a bit more responsibility. I was running some sort of process with, I don't know, dozen, 17, 20 people, something like that, doing payments or transfers or some data entry uh, type of thing. And by the way, you, I'd learned humility through that because the first day I took over that team, like I'm the whippersnapper graduate with all these ideas and I turn up and... This lady took me aside, right, and said, you know, Sonny, 
I've been working here doing this exact same job more years than you have been alive. So don't start telling me what to do. And I'm like, you know what? I think she's got a point, right? I really think she's got a point. So respect the person with the experience, respect them as people, and you never know. You might actually be able to encourage those people to want more, to have higher aspirations and change. But if you don't, then you know, you're, you're pretty much stuck unless you want to do all those jobs yourself. So that was a, a good learning, but we did have to improve. It was by now the early 90s. It was pretty hard times after the 80s had sort of gone to bust. So we had that recession. So costs had to be cut. We had to figure out how to do something with 20% less people. And we had some consultants come in to collect ideas and, and sort of tell us how to do that. You know, I probably wasn't aware and open enough at the time to different sources of insight and ideas, but I didn't think much of the process. We did make the targets and I put that down to the team. Uh, and the consultants, I thought, yeah, I'd, they'd maybe necessary for some other areas, but we don't need them here. I sort of see this in the clients I've served for the last 25 years. I, I, that reaction, I empathize, but also, you know, I understand where it's coming from, but also understand now, benefit of hindsight, how much value consultants could have probably added to me then if I'd have just used them in a different way. So how did it all come about? How did the step into McKinsey's come about? Yeah, you wouldn't have thought so at the time, would you? No. Um, end up in McKinsey and certainly not for so long. I got to business school. So after five years at City, I go off to INSEAD, mm -hmm. uh, which again, just like university had been, was a formative experience, opening my eyes to a whole world that I didn't know. I just didn't know. People from different countries all around the place, the different ways of thinking, great research, great ideas. So I loved it. There were some people there who I really liked. They're still mates today. And the funny thing was, more than average number of them came from consulting. And they'd done their business analyst time in consulting, gone off to INSEAD. And I thought, hmm, maybe I underestimated these consultants. Maybe they're not so bad after all. Because these people, and they're great friends today, a lot of them, were super smart, but they were also nice people. And that's the bit that was a bit of a surprise to me. And I thought, yeah, I'm just going to try this. I'm actually going to apply to some of these and, and do the interviews and see what happens. And then the McKinsey interviews amongst all of them was just a great process. And you're, you're asked real business problems. You're asked how you would solve it. You're not asked for the answer. You're asked for how you'd approach it, how you'd solve it. And that was really enriching to me. And I identified with the people interviewing me at the time. So when I got job offer, I said, yeah, I'm going to learn a lot here. I'm going to take it probably only for a couple of years, but uh, I think it's great. So I was pretty happy at that stage. And you started out in London? I started out in the London office. Where, where were you starting in? Which, which area? Well, I started out in banking and that was fine because I knew it. And then at the end of banking, it's gone pretty well. I said to uh, the person who did the assignments, Oh, you know, banking's fine. If I wanted to do more banking, I would have stayed working for City. Um, how about something really cool and, you know, media? How about media? That sounds really exciting. Well, that was going gangbusters in those days, it wasn't was. it? It was, yeah. This was the thing, right? Digital, multimedia, all of that. Remember that? Um, 1996. Uh, yeah. So I got my media project, and it was a disaster. 
It was a disaster. It sort of didn't follow the laws of physics, you know, or the laws of anything else. It was walked into something that was very political. It was very messy. It was, you know, these people did not want the consultants in at all. Um, they thought they were doing just fine. And yet there was, let's say, some areas that they probably needed to get a bit more efficient. And that was a bit of a mess for someone with not a lot of experience. And while we we survived and the organization survived, I think my uh, first evaluation after that project was a bit of a shocker. What was the feedback you got? Well, I started out saying something like, John, your first six months in the firm has been mixed. Now, when I saw that, I thought, well, that's not so bad. Mixed probably means there's some good parts and bad parts. So always the optimist. And then someone who'd been around a bit longer told me, no, 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 that's the absolute worst thing that they could say in McKinsey. That's not a good thing. I'm sorry to all McKinsey listeners out of there who are in this uh, world I was. Uh, that's not a good thing for them to say. Uh, and it said something like, you know, they were very nice. They said, while you're, you know, entrepreneurial skills and and clients or something will we'll serve you well later in your career. We recommend strongly for the next six months you focus on learning the basics and, you know, doing your job. And, you know, you've got six months to sort it or you're out. Is that right? That's right. What changed? I uh, then didn't get much choice about my next project. There was a mining project, actually, five hours from London, and no one else wanted to do it. So as the uh, person with that review, I got to do it. Got off the train, it was five hours train journey from London and met my manager and that manager was outstanding, amazing, completely saved my McKinsey career, taught me how to be a great consultant. Well, I'm not sure if I am a great consultant, but he taught me how, whether I actually <laughs> learned many of that, I don't know. Uh, and that just goes to, sometimes those uh, bad things that happen have great endings. Because if I'd have just carried along on things that I knew how to do without that knock, I would have never met Keith, the the manager, yeah. or that whole team, which was a hugely supportive team. I would have never had the experience in this mining company, which was really on the edge, about to go out of business. Right, okay. A major employer in a very remote part of the UK. It wasn't coal. It was an industrial mineral. Interesting little industry, actually but one that had been attacked by global, much cheaper competition and chemical substitutes. And these guys had been in this community doing this mining for over 100 years, suddenly find themselves under big threat. Uh, there's 3,000 direct employees. There's a whole town, which must have been 20,000 dependent on it, yeah. and more and livelihoods, no real alternative employment. That was a mission. This, is, this was what I was called for. Yeah. And with that terrific manager who was uh, giving me the best apprenticeship in consulting with clients who really wanted the help and a team who was uh, responding to the calling. Yeah, I spent almost a year there, uh, the succession of work. That place is you know, largely still operating today, by the way. Really? Uh, and help, just helping, right? helping that community, helping that company. And that was when the lights came on. This is what consulting can be. What's the art of consulting? What did, what did the actual manager really teach you? So part of it is, you know, you help solve problems, so how to do that. The other part, though, is how you work with the clients, how you help the clients, curiosity, the commitment, the care that you show, and focusing on what's important with your clients, sitting on the same side of the table, working on it together, rather than trying to, you're having to prove how smart you are or 
or any of those sort of things. We're sitting here in Australia. How did you get to Australia? Yeah, I wouldn't have picked that one either. I uh, had done this mining for a year. Now, there wasn't a lot of other mining going on in the UK at the time. I think uh, Mrs. Thatcher had seen to most of that mm. a decade previously. Uh, but I really wanted to do it. And there were some mining companies you know, headquartered in London that I went to see with one of the partners and would like to do some work for you. And, and basically, well, it's very good that you're interested. Why don't you go and find out what we really do? Your Australian office does some work in this area. You know, so do a couple of other countries. Get on one of those projects. And that's what the local guys were telling me. So I thought, you know what? Have a go. Do it quickly. Let's get on the next plane. And uh, I was down here, at, yeah, for uh, probably a year and a half, two years. I'd, I'd commute back and forth. So I'd do a project here. I'd go back to the UK. And then when the next one in the UK had finished, I'd find a reason to come back and work with this mining company again in, in Australia for a little while before the UK called me back. And I uh, found out that it's a pretty cool country down here. And that company also was really good. I think the industry started to uh, appeal to me and I started to understand it a lot more and be a lot more helpful beyond just the basic problem solving, operational improvement and economic analysis I'd done before. I started to really understand a bit more about it. So then the offer came to come for a year and work for a year on one of these type of projects. It was right during the dot-com boom. Everyone else was off making dot-com websites, you know, all, all of this work, and I was stuck in, probably I think it was an aluminium smelter back then, doing uh, operational turnarounds and loving every bit of it. Didn't feel I was missing out. This was my calling. It's what I wanted to do. Yeah, okay. Then the end of the year, well, it came, do we go back to London, which uh, is what McKinsey London wanted? Or the Aussies, they're not supposed to do this, but they said, well, John, if you want to stay, we probably could find a way to do that. So why well, they poached you, did they? Well, it's, I wouldn't say they Subtly. poached me. They just made it apparent that if I wanted to stay, that there would be an opportunity <laughs> ah. to do that. Carrie, my wife, uh, in fact, we weren't married at the time, but uh, we were together and we'd come over here for that year together. We couldn't work it. We'd loved it here. Right? We'd just had the millennium, the Olympics, by the time we're making this decision. It's just after the Olympics. We're sitting down for dinner and said, look, we feel we should go back because our families are over there and everything. But you know what? What a great opportunity. We could, we could stay. But it was very hard to decide. So uh, what we, we had a 20-cent coin and we, we flipped 20-cent coin. We thought, is Queen's Head on one side? That meant the UK. And a platypus on the other side? That meant Australia, right? So Flip this coin, comes down. Guess what? It's a platypus. So I'm like, yeah, it's a platypus. Carrie says, should we do best out of three? Now, if I'd have been at heart a sensitive Englishman, I would have probably figured out, wouldn't I? You'd have figured out that if she would not have said that, if she really, really wanted to stay, right? I didn't. Didn't get that at all. I'd flip the coin again. I thought she wanted to really do best <laughs> out of three, right? And... Uh, <laughs> And guess what? We got another platypus, right? And then it's dawning on me. Now, why did she say that again? Oh, I get it now. Okay. Oh, it's just a bit late. You know, so why don't we do best out of five? And she said, yeah, we'll do best out of five. Another platypus. And you know, we got seven in a row. Greg. You're kidding. No, seven in a <laughs> row. And then we stopped. You, then sure, we stopped. Yeah, you sure there was two sides to this there coin? Was, it was just a normal <laughs> coin. Might have even been one of hers. <laughs> so if that's not a sign, right? If that's not a sign what is so that was it and i think we've never looked back we've got uh, two wonderful aussie kids now we would got married the next year 
Uh, we still go back to the UK professionally and personally a lot, and we still will. But um, this is home. The consulting model has changed. You've been a part of all that. So what did change? No, I think consulting, um, and I've come to see this uh, now from those early days in Citibank and even INSEAD, has many great roles to play in the economy and in public service and, and even social outcomes. But the, the model which I, where I started was very much, you know, you get people to crack a really tough problem and you do that typically separately in an office and you know, present that, go then go and do presentation to the client in their boardroom. Here's the wonderful answer, right? And uh, they say, oh, that's great. Would have never thought of that. That's really good. You've got the detail. We'll go off and implement it. That's what it was for a while. What started to change, and I say McKinsey was probably late in this, other competitors, particularly the big firms, had been doing it more implementation uh, for a long time, is that the clients would say, can you help us implement this? And I don't mean come and do it you know, for us, but help us do it. And there'd been too many times, you hear the stories, right? The great reports, which were fantastic work, end up sitting on the shelf because they don't uh, get implemented. So yeah, was lucky to be part of the start of something called McKinsey Implementation, which um, would have been, I don't know, about 2009, 2010, something like that, yeah. where we started to hire a different type of person. Often they'd have been consultants very early on in their careers, but they'd gone to have good general management careers. And they would come back as implementation specialists to spend time really coaching, coaching the clients in their environment about how to make that change and working out how practically the model could land and be productive and be embraced. And that was, uh, you know, I'd, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur and you can be an entrepreneur inside McKinsey as well. So with other terrific colleagues, being able to introduce that, that was amazing, right? Because here we were bringing a new capability to our clients even though no, it wasn't something the firm had traditionally done. Everyone could see the sense of it. Was it getting success straight away? Yeah, I'd say in a small scale it was. You know, the, the firm was a little more skeptical. Is this really what we do? Are there any risks? That's fair enough. But after we'd proven success in Australia, then they said, okay, now how do we roll this out globally? In fact, that was my job for the next couple of years. It was uh, getting on a lot of planes. And I think we had 12 different hubs for implementation around the world. It was like running 12 startups, right, all around the place. And not all the local partnerships were quite as accommodating as Australia, let yeah, me exactly. tell you, right? I think yeah. here people will give something a go, especially if the clients want it. But some of the other more traditional areas, it was much harder work. But it was a lot of fun. And you know what? I was just convening a group of great people. That's what really made it work. And I don't know, there's probably a thousand or so implementation consultants in the firm all around the place today. And that's having that diverse talent has led to other innovations. It's helped the growth of other innovations like RTS in the firm and just other things where we're really teaming with clients and helping them make the change quickly. You just mentioned something there. What is RTS? A lot of business people know or hear about it, but what does it actually mean? Oh, back then, well, it, it was it was not invented in Australia. That's some people think it was, but it wasn't invented in Australia, right? Implementation was, but not this. This was sort of distressed restructuring for companies that in the US would be in Chapter 11. So it's, well, what, what would you do if you're really running out of cash? And 
I think there was a unit of a of a big business here that if it had been standalone would have been bankrupt for sure, right? It was losing cash all the time. But because it was part of a big parent company, they sort of, no one really was, didn't register in the same way as if it had been an independent company. So a couple of great colleagues got together and said, you know what, we could try this RTS thing in a company like that. And I said, well, look, I can help you here in Australia. We've got the perfect situation. So let's give it a go. And we said to the client, we've never done this before, but if you're willing to give this a go, we can apply that with you and you'll be helping us build it, see what happens. And that was a really important turnaround for that company. And the people who were in that at the time often have gone on to other companies now. And we were convinced then, look, this is just a different way of consulting. It's where you align completely with the client. You do the work together. You bring independence, but you convince the people who have to run the business about how to run it in a different way that is more, much more efficient and higher impact, however you define impact. And then um, you truly partner with everything at risk for the firm, but also you're, with, you're in with the client. And of course, you, you have to build the capabilities along the way. You can't just do this and leave. All part of it is the organizational health and capability building. It's just as an important impact as well. And alignment, in your definition, means linked to outcome? Yeah, linked to outcome. And um, in the day, especially if you're in a distressed turnaround situation, then that outcome is usually survival or cash flow or earnings. The interesting right now, and you know, we should talk about ESG in a bit, mm. is imagine if you applied that to some of the more environmental and social challenges we had today. So I don't think that's happening yet, but it could happen. So I'm just curious what that would look like. You're then made managing partner, Australia and New Zealand. What did you inherit and what did you want to achieve? So, I mean, first of all, it was a great honor, right, that I, I was not expecting. And that's an honor conferred by my partners. It's managing partner, not uh, CEO. Probably took me a while to realize that and some good feedback from my partners, by the way, that I wasn't always serving them well as a servant leader in the early days. So I appreciate that. I inherited a really good culture. I got to tell you, Michael Rennie, my predecessor, who had originated a lot of the hearts and minds type work with mm. clients and then spent some time in New York, had come back to lead the practice before me. He had uh, really enabled the group of partners that were there. It was a much smaller group. I don't know, it was um, 10 partners, 15, something like that. Uh, maybe grew to 20 by the time Michael finished up in 2013, 100 and some 130, 40 consultants, but we could really do anything. We're a young team, had a great culture, and as long as we're in service of our clients in the country, there's a lot we could do. So that was a perfect thing to inherit. Michael had done the hard part, which was get past 100 consultants. I don't think McKinsey had ever really got past 100 consultants in 40 years. Okay. I think the one time in the dot-com boom it did, it went straight back down again yeah, right. afterwards. So there was a bit in our mythology that, no, that's a, that's a limit. Mm -hmm. Michael had shown that was just mythology. And it was not a limit. So it was very easy then to take that culture and start to say, what if we innovate now? What if we bring some new things to our clients, which obviously implementation, RTS, what's the client's needs and how does our firm evolve to meet those needs? And this was just the start of digital, start of analytics and lots of needs out there of ways we could help our clients in new ways. And our job was to 
find the talent, make sure they were absolutely top-tier talent, and come up with ways that we could you know, help our clients build capabilities, build their courage, hire aspirations, and achieve great things. So that's the change we saw. I won't take any personal credit for that. I was just fortunate to be part of a team that was willing to give it a go. Yeah, but why did they choose you? What do you why do you think, like you said, Mr. Rennie's laid the platform, proven to break that glass ceiling? There are others they could have chosen. In being humble, I guess, but thinking it through, why do you think they it's that over to you, John? I think because I'd done some of that innovation and they thought the time was right to innovate. I think okay. that's what it was. And, and we did. And what does innovation mean for McKinsey's then? It's bringing new capabilities or building new capabilities, often with our clients, the first few times we do it, that are needed and it's in service of a bigger goal, not just getting the right answer, but getting a great outcome, outcome for the clients and outcome for the country. And once you have that different frame, that it's not just about doing brilliant consulting work, but it's about building a prosperous and inclusive Australia, New Zealand, let's say, new things become possible. So our colleagues, and colleagues have these ideas all the time because they're terrific people, right? There was someone who really wanted to build a public sector practice to help deliver public services more efficiently. And we hadn't done much of that. My job as managing partner, my successor's job now, is just to make that possible. Make it possible, find the resources, move away the barriers, find other colleagues that want to do it and make it happen. Let that, let that person make it happen. So is that the key to nurturing a culture of innovation for other organizations as well? Look, while every organization is different, I think moving the barriers out of the way, but you've also got to be prepared that they won't all work. And if when they don't work, that leads to bad outcomes for people, it's very hard to get the next generation of people to take the risk. So some might call that psychological safety in, in organizations. It could just be celebrating the learning. You learn when it succeeds, you learn when it doesn't succeed. But if you celebrate the learning, then everyone is uh, more likely to want to learn. Now you've led large transformation programs. So what's the obstacles in making them successful? Because the stats are pretty, pretty frightening, aren't they? Yeah, they don't all work. I mean, part of the job, I think, of a consultant is to just make sure the conditions of success are in place and help your clients see that. And sometimes they'll change to put those conditions in place. Sometimes they'll say, actually, we shouldn't do this work. Why they don't work is often because they're not embraced by an organization. So they're not really, people don't see, yes, we have to do this, we want to do this, and we can be successful in the new world. And that's just as true with a productivity or customer or technology or even now sustainability transformations. And it always seems to come down to not just what you do, but how you do it and how well you uh, can build capabilities, reinforce the outcome you want with all the formal and informal systems and just have good compelling stories. Right? Just share stories. Yeah, right. It sounds simple, but if you supplement all the hard work in a transformation with some of those what people might call softer factors, mm. then you've got a much higher chance of success, and it'll be a, a lot more fun on the way. Sometimes you get the reverse because people are a little bit fearful about all those things, and they say, no, we're going to stick to the way we do things because that's where we're safe, right? That's, that's where we've yep. all grown up and become leaders, and we're a bit worried 
that we've now got to use this new technology solutions or be zero emissions or be 20% higher productivity or whatever it is, that's a bit out of our comfort zone. It's a bit risky. You're not sure it'll work, right? If you have that dialogue, then you need to start having conversations about how you can take away the fear because it's the fear often that then drives people to resist. And if they resist, doesn't necessarily mean the organization is going to be safer or better for them. But at the time, it's an understandable human reaction. John, did you actually write once something in regards to a proposal? We don't actually know the answer. We don't even know if there is one. But we will commit to being curious with you and we'll open up our whole set of global experts and their alumni relationships and we'll ask the questions and do some tests. Is that true? <laughs> you do have good sources here. Um, I think we have, I start that first one. I remember the first time doing this, it was a very ambitious client and they wanted to completely change the way distribution worked in their industry. And they said, well, how would we do this? It's quite a new client for us, very ambitious. And we had a look around all our different global practices, offices, the same industry in other parts of the world, analogous industries, no one had ever done it. And I knew, I knew it was a competitive proposal, and there were a couple of incumbent firms that that company used all the time that were likely to win anyway. So I thought, you know what? We're just going to be brutally honest here. We could just turn it down, but I'm actually going to be honest about you know, what, what we know, what we don't know. We wrote a proposal very much like that yeah, um, sure. with a great colleague, actually, who yep. she said, we should just be completely honest here, but what we're really good at is being curious. So we will find people that know all the point parts of this solution. They just never knitted it together yet. And we will open up that world because that's one good thing a firm like McKinsey can do very well, all those connections. We'll make it fully available to the clients with us. We'll sit with them with some of their very best people and we'll put that solution together with them. And you know what? Maybe it won't work. But if it does work, if they find something, it'll be great. So we wrote that proposal, basically worded like you said. Right. I was a bit embarrassed to send it, honestly. This is not what McKinsey's supposed to do. We're supposed to say we've got 10 case studies. Here are all the references. We've done it lots of times before. But we sent it in. And you know what? We won. And the feedback was, yeah, we didn't think anyone had done it before. We really want to innovate. But it sounds like you want to do that too. So let's do it together. And that was you know, breaking into a new client to help them in a way, and you know what? They found a way to make it work as well. And they did disrupt distribution in their industry. True partnership then. Yeah, but it, it took a bit of doing, sending a proposal like that Absolutely. when you've had 20 years at McKinsey, right? I think we'd write more of those today. Yeah, I would really you? Do. I really do. I do. I think our firm does too. And from the client's perspective, to get that from McKinsey's, what do you think they went through when they saw that? I, I spoke to the client. Um, I still see the client quite a lot today. Is that just really honest? You were prepared to be vulnerable. You didn't try to make it up. I think we could work with you. What's been, in your view, John, the most common problem that CEOs have been facing in recent times? What's their challenges? What could they do better? Well, I've got huge admiration for anyone who takes on the role of a CEO. It's not easy, right? You've got all these different stakeholders that want often different things. Very hard, fast moving, surprises coming out of everywhere. And then you get COVID and then you get all these disruptions. So first of all, take my hat off to real CEOs. I don't count managing partners of consulting firms, although we have some of that. But the people that are running these massive 
multi-billion dollar enterprises. So what are some of the problems? Well, one is we very lucky but a bit isolated here in Australia. So disruption is actually reaching these shores. You know, we've had this moat that uh, has protected us from many ways or at least made the price level higher because of import parity and all that. And that is going away now because the digital moat is much easier to jump than the physical one. So first thing is just responding very quickly and often a bit later than they might like to some of the global disruption that's out there in new consumer sort of technology, direct-to-consumer channels, new business models. They're all here. If they exist anywhere in the world, they're going to exist here, and right. that's going to have implications for your industry. So you've got to get ready. You've got to be aware. You've got to get better at external orientation with your company, what is really happening around the world, and then getting there quickly not just sort of resting on your laurels. And most CEOs are very good at that, which leads, you know, they, they would have wished they'd have started five years ago, but they do know they have to, which leads to challenge number two. CEO might know what they want to do. How do you get a 30,000 person or whatever organization yeah. to change? Yeah. Incredibly difficult job, incredibly hard, especially when that organization has got so good at what they've done for X number of years. And that's what they're really perfected. How do you say, well, that was good, but it's not going to take us further. We've now got to learn some new tricks and make it a go back to psychological safety, a safe environment for those uh, people to learn and adjust. I think that's a big challenge that some, you know, some companies are going through that right now. In fact, I think all companies are probably going through that right now. Just because the CEO wants something doesn't mean that... Uh, the organization immediately says, right, we get it now. We're going to do it differently. Probably. Are we going to see a different type of CEO then? Look, I, I think we already are in some ways. And it's not just about the CEO. We're also seeing different types of leaders, different types of people on boards and executive teams that are probably, and this is where diversity does help because a bit more curious, they're bringing different perspectives, bringing different thinking. So yes, I do think we'll see it. I think we'll see people move around industries a lot more. We get that far more in other markets than Australia, but I think it's now starting to come to Australia. If you think of people who are moving companies and moving industries, we'll see that velocity increase because it's a good way to bring new perspectives. Yeah, so I think we're starting to see people being more curious, taking new perspectives, and also I, I'd like to see, I'm not sure I'm seeing it completely yet, just being willing to be a bit more vulnerable. Let's solve it together. Let's solve it together with the company. Let's actually sometimes solve it together with the industry or with the broader system, including government and including you know, investors, uh, universities, research organizations as well. Because there are big complex problems out yeah. there and the way you solve big complex problems of tomorrow is very different to the way we got used to solving complicated problems of yesterday. John, I've got to ask this question. What are your thoughts in regards to McKinsey's recent settlement? Again, from the work done on the opioids in the US. No, no, fair question, fair question, Greg. And, you know, I'm not intimately familiar with that, uh, that work, of course. But what I do know is, and I think every partner in McKinsey will tell you this, that we're not at all proud of that work. We should never have done that work. And um, we now have in place a large number of processes and risk sort of uh, 
infrastructure and actually different interpretations of our timeless values, which will stop us doing ever do work, not just in opioids, but other work that uh, that may become a future version of opioids again. You know, it would have been when I started, even five years ago, I could have just gone to commit the firm or me and my mate could have gone to commit the firm to some massive undertaking for a client without much scrutiny. Okay. Now we couldn't do that, right? So I think it's good that we've, it's, a sh- it's such a shame it happened, a human tragedy, right? I don't know the uh, all the liabilities and who did what, whatever. I'll leave that to the, to the legal folks in the US. But... Um, I do know it's such a shame it happened. And what my uh, I'm also pleased by is we're not just stopping at the sort of legal remedies or the, the uh, risk management side of this. We also recognize that it's going to take some cultural change. So, for example, I one of the things I do in the firm is evaluate our senior partners in parts of the US, right? So I have to understand the work they're doing and you know, how, how well they've done and then there's a big evaluation committee meeting and they all get feedback. So one of the questions I'm asking this year is about their impact on society. How do they have impact on the whole of society, not just the bottom line, right? And just questions like that will start to influence things a bit, I think, than the cultural change from our managing director and the new managing director, Bob Sternfels, yes. I think will be very clear. So it's not something any of us are proud of. Do you think the industry as a whole will change in, in nature or, or not? Because everyone's got their version of this, right? And Correct. I'm sure there'll be more in the in the future. I think it it has to, but it it'll change also by I think some things that the industry can do just to get a bit more externally aware. Yeah, you know, well, I I love um, when I see partners, consulting partners, sort of on not for profit boards and volunteering because they're starting to learn different perspectives. Yeah, right. One of the things that influenced me, I was managing partner. Then we had a partner offsite. It was actually in Tasmania, but as well as all the fun things you do like Mona and Hobart, we had this uh, session with, you know, people like the Tasmanian Council of Social Services came in ahead of that. Kim Goods, terrific person. The the lady Rebecca Cardos, who run the local energy utility down there. You know, Rufus Black, who's the vice chancellor of uh, UTAS, and. And just talking about some of the issues that were really being faced in Tasmania. And I always remember one of the things they said, oh, we've got a really thing with the energy company and, and Tascos work together on, which is in winter in Tasmania, if your power gets cut off, that's a real problem, yeah. right? People can freeze. People actually freeze to death. No. And therefore, it's a very careful when someone hasn't paid their bill for a long time, that process, what they, how they go through, they make sure the person's safe and I said, I, that was really meaningful to me. And, you know, next time when I've got a, a client asking, oh, we've got to do some working capital improvement. So what should we do about people who don't pay their bills on time? Right? Completely different client, different con- different part of the country. That'll stick with me. And I'll say, have you thought about why people can't pay, what circumstances that they're in, any risk to safety? Whereas, you know, the without that experience, I might have actually said, yeah, we've got ways you can improve working capital. So I think the more we can expose people in all walks of business to those experiences and get more external orientation, different perspectives, the better outcomes that we'll get. Is this holistic impact? Is that what that, when you talk about holistic impact, or this is just part of the journey? Look, it's part of the journey. I, I do think that impact has to be defined you know, on all, all stakeholders. How are you impacting all stakeholders? So that's society, that's the environment, customers, employees, as well as shareholders. 
You right. can't leave shareholders behind. And that's your focus? That's become my purpose, I'd say, helping business have impact, positive impacts on all their stakeholders, including the environment, you know, society, communities, people who can't buy their products, can't afford them, whatever. They're all stakeholders too. And uh, I believe business is an incredibly or potentially is an incredible force for good mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. um, just think how many products, customers, employees, all the resources business has, the presence. Imagine how much impact we can have positively on the society and environment. And by the way, I spend a bit of time doing the research on this. It's pretty good for the bottom line as well, if you get this right. So right, it's not just an altruistic endeavor. It's actually your shareholders do pretty well too. All right. Illuminate us. What are, what are the numbers we should be mindful of? Well, it's again, different for different companies, but I, I took a sabbatical when I finished my rotation as managing partner here and did some work, including at UTS as an industry professor there and in some other places too, just doing some uh, research. To I wanted to see if there was something in this, what I suppose now is, is ESG, but we're talking yeah. a couple of years ago now. And uh, the best work I found, I, I did my own research and I, you know, I don't think it was the best, but it showed that there was some big input and there's been a lot of studies, meta studies, 60 odd percent have shown a positive correlation, only 10% are negative. But the best one is George Serafim at Harvard Business School and companies that can embed an ESG aligned purpose into what they do, like the top decile, what he'd say is purpose clarity. So it really impacts what everybody does in the company, not just a slogan on the wall. That's purpose camaraderie, he calls that one. But the purpose clarity, which is embedded into the company, top decile, they got 4% a year higher returns from that. And it was, uh, you know, checked the rigor on that uh, published work. It's pretty, it's pretty right. right? It's, um, that to me said, right, there's something in this. I'm going to find out more. I'm going to do more work on the how. And I think that's now become my purpose for uh, yeah, my however long I've got to help business with that journey. What is ESG, John? Well, ESG and environmental, social governance, right? It's um, understand understand the headings, but what had translated what it actually really means. See, you can look at it as a list of bullet points underneath those headings, right? Yeah. That's one way to look at it, which is you know, in the E, it's not just carbon emissions. Clearly, is that, but it's also things like you know, biodiversity and water and pollution, natural capital. Uh, then in the S, it's all sorts of things like modern slavery, diversity and inclusion, working conditions, safety, and the, the G is all just different sort of governance uh, methods and how your boards work and manage risk. And again, diversity comes in there too. So that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is, you know, how is your company showing up? How does your company think about what their job is, what their purpose is, and getting a purpose which captures what the company uniquely can do for the world, as well as what it can do for shareholders, is another take on ESG. And then embedding that purpose into the way the company works, I think is the best take of all. And then you're not just making money, you're also making sure through all the actions of the company and the people who work there, that you are creating value for the environment and for society and demonstrating good governance. And I believe some of your research has illustrated, is it, is it five key, key principles or key learnings? 
So I suppose if I summarized my sabbatical into five things, yeah. um, one we've already covered, but first thing is you can't ignore this and, and use it or lose it, by the way. It's uh, now a conversation. I think my quick um, survey of CEOs I've spoken to and chairman I've spoken to, the investor round after what for most people was a half year, 60% of that, right? That's my median. I did a quick survey. I said, how much was on ESG? How much on other stuff? And my median was 60%. So if you're out there, think about your conversations with investors post, uh, and this is investors, by the way, who you'd think would be motivated by profit, right? Yeah. This is not with the unions or with whatever. Um, 60% was about ESG. So the good news is post bushfires, post pandemic, business is doing a bit better than we were. And we've got a bit more trust with the community. So the Edelman's Australia Trust Barometer, yep. it went up, I think, from 50 Two to fifty-two percent said business trusted business of people. Right, it went up uh, this year to I think sixty-three, so an eleven-point jump. Wow. I say that's momentum. Use yeah. it or lose it. And and business has been good through uh, the pandemic. And you know many businesses had very positive actions, collaborated well with governments, have done good things, repayment holidays or rent relief or let people return products, kept people on. I just think uh, it's been a good period. It's obviously a lot of tragedy and COVID and a lot of bad outcomes, but it's been a good period for business to show what we can do for the good of a community and society. So use it or lose it. That's uh, insight number one. Two is the, uh, I've already mentioned, if you do this well, it will be valuable to your shareholders. 4% Sarah Fimes research. So it's not just you doing it out of charity, right? This is actually good for the bottom line. And how many and what percentage are you going to do your back of your envelope summary there are doing it well, according to you? Well, that's the third, third insight, right? Is that there are four levels that we came up with. So I'll describe these levels and tell me, you know, where you think, and I'll give you my opinion on where Australian business is. Level one, right? I'll, level one is don't do bad stuff. So Commissioner Haynes' first recommendation, yep. obey the law, right? Yep. But also in there, we've got things like don't hurt people, don't pay suppliers late, don't dodge your taxes, you know, don't sell bad products, unfair products. So d just don't do bad things. That's level one. And, you know, a lot of effort goes in there. Level two, start to do some good. So you're already not doing bad things, and now you adopt some causes. There might be some bullet points out of ESG. There might be certain social causes, and you do some good in them. Not lip service. No, this is really doing it, putting your money where your mouth is. So that could be through a foundation. It could be through philanthropy. It could be through a corporate social responsibility program. It could be through reconciliation action plan. It could be through, like McKinsey does a lot of pro bono work, so do law firms and others. This is starting to do some good, but you notice all those things, they're a little bit separate from the core business, right? So there, uh, I think Howard Davies, who was the director general of the CBI in the UK, uh, said, um, yeah, corporate social responsibility has some really good people and good ideas, but um, it's kind of what you do on Friday afternoon when the work of the week is done. Yeah. So the risk of this is while you're doing wonderful work and causes are benefiting, social impact is happening. Problem is, it's separate to the business. That's level two. Level three is where you become integrated. You integrate that purpose, not off to the side, but in everything you do. So for example, 
right? You uh, might change your product portfolio based on are these products fit for our purpose or not. Yep. CVS, right, a healthcare store. It's actually a drugstore in the US. Drugstores in the US sell everything, right? Yep. And they used to sell tobacco. It was $2 billion a year of revenue for them. They had a purpose, helping people to better healthier lives. They stopped selling tobacco because they saw it as against that purpose. It was inauthentic. That cost them $2 billion a year of revenue. They stopped that in 2014. You look at the difference between their 14 and 15 numbers. So um, that's one example. It could be how you make investment decisions. Are you putting a true carbon price into your cost of capital? Are you charging internal carbon price? It could be your KPIs you use. It could be your REM models. Good one for boards. And it has to get beyond ticking the boxes. What about the outcome, the impact? Are you incentivizing your workforce on the impact of that purpose? So if you're a bank and your purpose is helping grow the economy and jobs through your business lending, does that show up in your incentives? How many jobs got created or how much economic growth there was? If you're a healthy, you know, you're transitioning from unhealthy to healthy products, if you're a food company, are you willing to put part of your incentive plan on the community health outcomes in the areas where you operate? So those sort of things. That's what embedding at level three is. Is that all measurable when you, when you do things like that? I think you can always find a way to measure it. It's just not always completely within your control. Yeah, right? So those health outcomes, they might, you know, not go to your competitors and eat unhealthy products for them. What are you going to do? And that's yeah. often what people say. I say level four is where you form coalitions. Where what does that mean? You realize that the company alone could have a, you know, some impact, but they'll have a lot more impact if you joined up with other industry participants, maybe with the government or local health services or police or something like that. And you're doing your part in something bigger to achieve those outcomes. So that's level four. So one, two, three, four, where do you think Australian business is, Greg? And, and people are taking initiatives all over the place, but where's the center of gravity? Two? Yeah, it's about right. Two with two trying to get to three? Two trying to get to three is right, with occasional slips back to one, right? Yeah. When, when royal or commissions too hard or happen or bad yeah. things happen while you're trying to do good things, right? Which yeah. we see a bit in mining or banking or whatever. Uh, and um, look, it's good they're trying and everyone wants to get to three. I think investors want to get there. Business wants to get there. But um, it's hard. And that's the fourth learning, how you do it. You'd have to do it with your stakeholders. You have to open up. You have to get the same side of the table as them. Understand their worlds. Understand how you impact on their worlds. And that is how you form the purpose that you can embed. You can't imagine what your stakeholders might want. You've got to do it with them. And that means giving up a little bit of control, right? That's quite scary and confronting. The final lesson is, again, the leaders who do this well lead in a certain style. They're prepared to be more vulnerable, to not know the answer, to have to collaborate to find it, to be curious, to bring multiple perspectives, including their stakeholder perspectives. And this is true of boards as well as executives. It's also true of stakeholders. Right? It's good to have not-for-profit CEOs who understand a bit about business Absolutely. or government that understands a bit about business, education, regulation, investment. Yeah. So bringing that system together is something that I think Australia can really do, really do a good job in. Going back to your, your four, four levels, any examples you can share or of organizations or countries which seem to be leading the way at level four? Yeah, three and four, right? Because I'm, I'd, I'd be honestly happy if people get to three, because then the move to four is, is easy. Yeah, okay. So there are, I think Europe has led the way in the world, and Northern Europe, 
has done. Um, you know, Scandinavia, Nordic countries, even the UK to some extent has been on this journey for a while. And people often hold up a company like Unilever, for example, have taken when Paul Polman was CEO and now with Alan Jope have taken action at level three and four really well. And you see this in how they show up even in Australia. Um, companies like Patagonia, again, are famous. A lot, a lot of the B Corps, they're often smaller companies, but yeah. B Corps are, are good at this. Best Buy, I like some of the things that a company like IKEA is doing now. There's, there's lots of good global examples, right? And I'll, uh, but it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not out of reach for Australia. If they really think about this and create the right environment and align people and the stakeholders around a purpose, that journey doesn't have to take years. And have we seen a number of organizations, John, which have put forward that they are doing it, but really are just telling us a mistruth? Yeah, or they might be telling you a truth in one part of the business. Problem is over here, there's something else bad going on, yeah. right? And I think that's the bigger problem with level two. And while it's great, don't stop having a foundation. Don't stop doing pro bono work, giving uh, back to the communities that you operate in. Don't stop having you know, actions to get out of high emissions. Um, but that's not all. You've got to then build into the way you run the company. And the problem is if you do stop at level two and you don't take that next step, you might have a part of the business that in the pursuit of a very different goal is doing something completely counter yeah, right. to all the work that, you know, we saw it a bit in mining, right? All the counter to all the work in reconciliation action plans, but bad things happen in traditional owners. You saw it in banking, doing really good work philanthropically and really doing good things to create better outcomes for people. But then because of a loss of control somewhere else, you've got bad products being sold or bad things happening. So I, I'm not saying the reaction should be to tighten up every risk process going. That's a defensive mechanism. I think getting to level three is a much more proactive way to do this. So everybody in the company is turning up in a different way striving for a purpose and with all the support systems and tools and formal and informal incentives and procedures and everything and accountabilities lined up to that better purpose. Who's driving this? When it's the CEO, good things happen. When it's the board plus the CEO, that's the best. And usually that means investors are supportive too. And a lot of investors are supportive. I think there's about a third of global assets now, about uh, 30 something trillion have some sort of ESG component in the mandates and growing very fast, growing 10x between 2019 and 2020 is um, positive screened, actively managed ESG funds. So the money is coming to this. The um, boards and CEOs are noticing. And I think when you get alignment there, good things happen. So how does a CEO or a company start out on this journey, John? Being curious. I think starting to think about what uh, this means for them. And you know what? You've got to start with looking in the mirror, holding up the mirror. And sometimes what you see isn't what you thought you'd see. So talk to your stakeholders honestly on this, from the same side of the table, not across the table. There's lots of data out there from different rating agencies, sustainability reports. Get someone to do a comparison of where you're stacking up in your industry across your sector, especially with global peers, and rank on all the ESG dimensions. And have a think about you know, what your incentives and processes are set up to achieve, and is that consistent with where you want to go? So I think that sort of curiosity that a company can have is a great start to the process. 
And don't be surprised if it's not all going to be beautiful. That's okay. Just asking the question shows you the work that you need to do. And that's the corporate side. Where's government at? Governments are a really important stakeholder, and I think they want a lot of the same outcomes. When government gets together with industry to push things together, then that is just amazing, right? And you see that in some of the ways governments got behind some of the job creation uh, in industries that need the skills, uh, for example. So I think getting, again, there's probably a regulatory view, which is level one, and then there's government you know, supporting companies to get to level three. There's something else that they could do. So I'm, I'm optimistic the government wants the same thing, a really important stakeholder. Let's also think how we you know, bring the system together. Government has to be at the table, as do not-for-profits, investors, regulators, unions, as well as business. What would you like your role to be in all of this, John? Well, it's, uh, it's all, all open. I'm loving not knowing because I'll be leaving McKinsey towards the end of this year okay. after 25 years. I decided on my 25th anniversary of joining the firm, actually, a couple of months ago to uh, – to let them know that. So I'm looking forward to having some sort of role, mm-hmm. possibly in different parts of that system to sort of bring different perspectives. I, I like helping. That's what I learned on my sabbatical. I did this thing helping while learning. So I didn't know about, and I didn't know a lot about climate change, to be honest. I knew a bit about a McKinsey view, an analytical view of it. Yeah. I didn't really know how that affects a CEO, a company, all the different decisions. So when Lynette Main and David Thode asked me to help them co-chair the uh, team's uh, climate leaders coalition i said well i don't know a lot about it but i think i can co-chair something so as long as you're happy for me to learn and they were and that's been a wonderful experience so, so let's, what is that what is the b team well b team is a is sort of global social impact foundation i suppose set up by richard branson and others you know years ago the lynette main co-chairs that in australia mm-hmm. and they've done some interesting work on the future of work for example but the one they are now doing, I'd say we are now doing, called the Climate Leaders Coalition. I think David Thode might have mentioned it when he was on your podcast. Yep. But we help facilitate a process where 25 CEOs come together once a quarter to, amongst themselves and in breakouts, get across and help each other on the key issues they're facing in climate change and in a transition to a low-carbon economy. So they do that through listening to global success stories, like we've had the Paul Polmans and Jesper Broden from IKEA and people like that, Vicky Holub from Occidental, who are taking different approaches. They do it from teaming up on deep dives of task forces, where them and their heads of sustainability do real work in areas like financing or technology, hydrogen partnerships, things like that. Mm-hmm. And just by generally having an open and safe space to discuss issues that uh, have a lot of issues in this transition, it's not obvious. So this is not an advocacy group or anything like that. It's a group to really help business do what business needs to do to reduce our own emissions. But it's an example for me of helping while learning. It's been incredibly good for me to have done it. I hope I've added some value too. Where do you see climate change sitting here in Australia? You know, we just had the recent catch-up with Mr. Biden, part mm-hmm. of the world, and our Prime Minister. Um, mixed reviews, but I'll be – is the debate being won, lost? It's moving. I think it's moving in a positive direction for, for everybody. And business is stepping up. Right? That's the bit I can really comment on. If you look at sustainability reporting, most business have quite ambitious targets in line with the Paris Agreement. Yeah. Some going considerably beyond that. 
Um, so I think it's it's a huge crisis, right, for our our world, for intergenerational crisis for our planet, right? I think people are aware of that, or ninety percent of people are aware of that. The question now becomes how, and it's just like you know the same what we talked about earlier with ESG starting to understand all the stakeholders. You don't want winners and losers here. It's a big crisis for everybody. We've all got a stake in it. Let's make sure everybody can get through an energy transition to a low emissions world, a business transition, in good shape. And that obviously means reducing the emissions. But what about jobs? Correct. Right. What about livelihoods? Yeah. What about innovation? What about Australia's place in the world? That's right. So the more we can treat this as a holistic problem and get all the stakeholders together, and there are some wonderful people doing that, mm -hmm. you know, Centre for Policy Development, others, then the better outcome we'll jointly get and we'll keep people there along the way. And I think the problem is if you don't do that, it can become a bit divisive and then it's very hard to take that forward. But how do we do that? We've been going backwards and forwards on it. We've been talking about it for 15 years and still having split in both, both sides of the parliament. So how are we going to get a plan? Because you just can't go leap, yeah. bang. Well, first, yeah. first of all, we've got to do the easy bits first, right? There are a lot that are very um, economically positive and emissions reductive, right? So yeah. you don't stop doing the easy bits. That's one of the things that Climate to Leaders Coalition is all about. Yeah. Look, I, I wasn't in Australia then. I was still in the UK, but I hear great things about the Accord the Absolutely. accord, which was that was more about inflation and pay rises with the Hawke-Keating days. Yeah, and Mr. Kilty sitting yeah, on the other side. Yeah. I wonder if there's something like that now. Yep. What's the accord between emissions, jobs, livelihoods? And I do know that as we transition to a new economy, everyone's got to do well in that. And I'm sure they will. There's lots of areas where Australia can lead, can grow, can grow new businesses that will have wonderful jobs in them. Might need some skills and training. One of the other things I do is uh, chair a not-for-profit Generation Australia that's very much demand-led, and we see unlimited demand for areas where there are jobs, right? Junior web developers, cloud support, a lot of the disability and aged care, there are lots of areas where there's plenty of jobs, can't get enough people. Yeah, but what about the other side, John, where there's always those 40-plus, and a great big transformation comes in or restructure comes in, and they're lost. It's very and, that, and they don't get re-educated necessarily, yeah. do they? Well, I think that's it's important we start that now, right? Okay. So we start doing the reskilling now and not reskilling into something completely different. Not everyone's going to be a data scientist, right? That's not one of the areas. But if you're uh, a business and you've got assets, whether it's climate change or not, that probably won't be there. And I'm not just worried about that 40 plus year old, I am worried about them, but I'm also worried about the next generation in that community that might not have. A, uh, a job that they're going to go to, what are they going to do too? Then getting the skilling, getting the change in the, in the skilling system early enough so people start to build confidence. And I think business needs to take a lead role in that, not for their employees, certainly not just for the retrenched employees, but for their current employees, also for their supply chains and the small business in their supply chains, also for the communities in which they operate. And I think good businesses are taking responsibility and start early because we all know this is going to happen. It can't not happen. But by starting early, there's a bigger chance that everybody's going to do well out of the transition. And Australia as a nation is going to do well out of that transition. You start by getting the people around the table. And perhaps there is something like the Accord. And I would bring unions in that too, yeah. because jobs are an important part of it. 
but this time it is so we can be you know net zero emissions but we can also be net zero job loss for example or net zero you know economic loss okay so we get that accord mark two squared away we get everybody around the table and we come to you john and say right if we are going to build for the future or position the nation for the future where should we specialize in as we said in the umpteen podcast we're great at digging holes etc etc the world's changing at the moment so we've got to make our play so what does that play look like john and it's for australia and i think it's for all industrial sectors as well to go from winning because of privileged assets to winning because of better capabilities and when i look at the capabilities and skills where australia could lead the good news is there's a lot of them we've got smart people here it's a place people when they're allowed to come again will yep. come and there's a lot of them coming home by the way a lot of good mm. talent coming back yep we've got a good economic system we're starting to see better tax incentives for things like r&d so a lot of ingredients are now there that weren't there a decade ago. Mm -hmm. So some of those uh, more technology industries, some of the higher design, higher servicing, analytics. It's like if you think of the life cycle of anything, it starts with you know, design and it ends with servicing. And in the middle, there's manufacturing and use, right? It's maybe the manufacturing we've been historically less competitive in, but we're very competitive and have a real comparative advantage in some of the design, actually some of the financing and some of the analysis of the use and maintenance and servicing. And that's just as true in mining, where actually you say we, we dig holes and we do have privileged assets and good deposits. But a lot of the reason we win in mining is because of the capability that we have. Now, what would that capability be worth even without the privileged assets. That's what I'd encourage business to think about. But are we investing to be the smart nation? No, look, I think there's lots of lots of ways we are investing because companies are investing. I spent last week with um But are they are we investing in R and D a lot, do you think, compared to other parts of the world? There's more than you think and there's okay. more in capability development as well. Right. We can always do do more. Right? Yep. We can always do more. But saying I spent a couple of days last week with a mining company yep. talking about strategy. Even 10, 20 years ago, that strategy would have been, how can we build more mines, right? Yeah, right. Okay. How can we build cheaper mines, lower cost? Actually, now, it's what are our capabilities? Because China isn't going to want the same things. Asia isn't going to want the same things. There'll be carbon constraints on what they can buy. They'll different needs. How can we get the better capabilities, the best technology, advanced analytics to really understand those markets and produce something different that won't look like what it was before, but different ways we can participate in their low carbon economy. And that thinking's happening now. That thinking's happening in a lot of companies. Yeah, I hope to see it translate into action, uh, but I've every reason to believe it will. So All let's right. use it or lose it, right, in that respect. All right, well, what's your greatest fear then? You're one of these few people that get to see right across the horizon in all the leadership and the thinking. So I'm an optimist, right? So it's hard to have a greatest fear, but I've got a couple. Go on. So one is that we don't look enough at what's happening in the world around us. We don't look at what is happening in Asia today. We don't look at what's happening politically, not just South China Sea, but what about Russia or Iran? Or yep. And be curious about that. What does that mean for us? And not just from a nation state point of view but what, are, what does it mean for business you know what does the fact that china says they're going to be 
net zero by 2060 with an inflection point in 2030 where it stops rising. What does that mean for us? I know we're out of the Pilbara might not quite be so uh, much in demand in China yeah. in those days, but we've got time. So what can we do now to change the way we operate? What can we do to start developing markets in places like Indonesia, where there's a lot happening, a lot of potential, but it's a very complex situation. And uh, the fear then is that we don't look outside ourselves, that we keep on being more comfortable, just getting something that works in Australia. And then my other fear is that the system doesn't come together, that business comes up with a great solution in its silo and government in its silo and investors in theirs and not-for-profits in theirs and unions in theirs. When actually we all work together, we make the pie a whole lot bigger and we learn a lot more too. That's going back to the accord again, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is. And, and sometimes it's important to get, you know, be in your silo. Sometimes you have to, you know, put your oxygen mask on first, that sort of thing. Sometimes you do. But let's not spend too long in there. And one of the things that's impressed me in the last year is the resilience of the system post-pandemic. Yeah. You know, a year, a year and a bit ago, whenever all this started, we did not hope that we would be here right now. It's impressed on the upside in Australia for sure, but actually in a lot of other countries as well, given what people were fearing. Obviously, there's tragic spots even now as we're recording this, which we hope for better outcomes. But on average, the system has proved it's pretty resilient. So that's the optimist in me. It says, how can we use that? How can we solve for something bigger and bring all our talents to bear in doing it? All right. Well, in that spirit of optimism, global economy, global politics is definitely on in the change. How do you see it starting to play out and where should we start making our moves? You've got the Russians going into the Arctic. You've got the Iranians, as you mentioned a minute ago, doing a terrific oil deal with, with China. You've got the Five Eyes. You've got the Quad. What should we be thinking about, John? Well, I'm sure there's better people who can answer that question than, uh, than me. I just say we need to be curious and aware and um, get you know understand what's going through the mind from the perspective of those countries because what looks horrific to some people actually looks like a completely natural act from others. So when you understand all those perspectives, sometimes these things are a bit less scary. I worry some of them get a bit more scary as yeah, well because yeah. you can see what the intent is. Certainly, we shouldn't get scared of Asia because we are in the geography and the era with the you know two billion consumers, and they're not all in China, middle class, that is, consumers that yes. have good money to spend, and they're not all in China either. There's plenty of other That's right. um, emerging Asian nations. We need to get a lot more curious about that and spend a lot more time there. I learned so much earlier in my career from having lots of time in particularly China, but other, other parts of Asia really encourage uh, others to do that where you get the opportunity and not just the uh, boardrooms, but actually go to the steel plants, right? Go, go and see what's happening in regional cities, which is super impressive. And wow, if that's there, what can we do? What can we do to help them? What can we do with them? From all your years and experience, can you explain to the audience in your terms, what is good leadership? Again, I don't hold myself as a as an example of good leadership necessarily. Remember that feedback that I had from my partners when uh, I was office manager at McKinsey. Um, but at McKinsey, we do something called servant leadership, mm. and that's got a lot going for it. And that is how you enable others. It's how you understand and enable others for what they want to do and who they want to be. 
And I really like that definition of leadership. As I say, I wasn't very good at it at the start. I got a bit better, I hope, at the end. It's not as easy as it sounds, though, because if you're a servant leader, you've also got to ask yourself the question, who am I serving? Are you just serving the powerful people of today who may be the ones who put you there? And are you serving them in the context of today? Or actually, do you serve them well by helping them adapt to the future? Are you supposed to serve the next generation as well as the current generation? Because they're thinking very differently. And are you serving the institution by increasing the diversity and the inclusiveness of that institution, even though the current leadership may not be as diverse or inclusive as it needs to be in the future? So all those complexities in servant leadership, it's not as obvious as just canvassing people and doing what the consensus is at the time. But that's what's you know, made it an incredibly rewarding period for me, which I'm very grateful for and hope to apply my learnings later on. So do you walk the floor, John? How do you inspire? How do you, okay, so I understand what you just said about servant leadership, but how do you put the vision into someone else's mind? So it has to be their vision, really. So you help them come up with the vision, and that can be done collectively. Uh, I like to expose myself to new situations and to take others into those situations, to make connections even when I'm not there, but I'm pushing others into new situations. And I find they get more inspired. So I think we would come up with a better policy or new practice area at McKinsey if we asked all the business analysts what they thought, not just ask the senior partners. And of course, we've got to ask our clients. Maybe we should ask some not-for-profits. We should certainly ask some public servants. What about universities? So I think inspiring is a bit about what a leader can do, but it's also a lot about the environment you create for people to go and explore in themselves, and they come back with a passion, having seen something different, and they want to do it. What are you putting all this together as a leader? Time to think, John. Do you get much time to do that, and where do you do it? really important to get time to think, to the balcony, right? The yeah. uh, reflection as well as the action. And I force myself to do it. I enjoy a lot, right? So I enjoy doing it running, actually. I, I used to run the music. I don't know. I'll listen to a podcast occasionally, but usually I'll be thinking. So I'm running four or five times a week, long runs. So that's my best thinking time. Um, I'll try to um, – actually, this is a funny thing, right? I, I use a lot of public transport, and partly that's just my own stubbornness on carbon footprint and things like that. I got the train down here, things like that. Uh, but actually, it's harder to have the phone calls, right, when, you, when you're there, especially with clients because of confidentiality and things. So you can't, right? And I don't want to be craned over a phone trying to do email on a small screen. So I use that as thinking time. It's actually been quite good. Thinking and observing, by the way, so the two for me go together. And then it's super important for every leader to have what I'd call a confidant, someone who can drag them up to the balcony when they need to be there to actually say, right, that's enough. Switch off. Let's go for a coffee. Let's have a chat. So I use that because thinking you do on your own, but it's also good to have a partner when uh, you want that time to think. So what's up with the balcony? You see the whole dance floor, right, on the balcony. When you're in the dance floor, you just see the, I'm stealing from Ron Heifetz here, but you just see what's going on close to you. But you get up the stairs to the balcony, you're looking down on the whole dance floor. You can see what's going on, start to see the patterns. And then when you decide to go back to the dance floor, you maybe head to a different place where it's a bit more fun. So I like that analogy and get some balcony time in every day. What's next? 
What's next for me? Mm. A wonderful period of not knowing. And then I'm sure I'll know, but I know what my purpose is, which is to help business evolve to be great business. Don't get that wrong. Shareholders will do very well, but to create value for all their stakeholders, society and the environment. That's just my calling now. And it was a bittersweet decision to leave McKinsey because I could have done a lot of that at McKinsey. Already was starting to. But I probably would have had to do a lot of other things as well, to be fair, to serve the firm well. So I, whatever, whatever that means, maybe it means executive life for a company that really wants to change and trust me to do it, um, lead people to do it. It could be uh, working across the system as more portfolio of roles. Some would be business roles, but government, investor, not-for-profit, university as well. Or it could be something completely different. All I'll know that uh, every time I've forced myself to go into a new situation where I haven't known, great things have happened. And I probably, it's about time I did it again. And if you were to look back at that young gentleman wheeling and dealing at high school who had aspirations to one day run that supermarket, what advice would you give him now? Well, I think he'd be pleased to be the first time he was called a gentleman for a, <laughs> for a while. You know... I'm not sure I'd change too much at all. I'm not sure I'd have too much advice at all. I've been very lucky, very fortunate, and everything I've done hasn't always been gone swimmingly the first time, but it's ended up in a great place. So I'd hate to give myself any advice, which means I would have not had the setbacks because it's from those setbacks I've learned most of all. So I think uh, just go be yourself. Just be yourself. Don't try to be what you're not. Be comfortable being you. And I hope that's what I still am today. On that, John, thank you very much for making the time to join us today. It's been a pleasure, Greg. Thank you. You've been listening to No Limitations. 